welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 51, Chastening. I want to start out with a shout out to my friends in Germany. It really is so fun for me. It's not like I have this like giant international following, but it's so fun for me to watch my map. I know I've said this a million times, but it's so fun for me. So I kind of want to every once in a while give a shout out to some of you around the world who are listening because I know I have a lot of listeners here in the United States, but somehow it just feels so cool to watch you pop out throughout the pop up throughout the map and think about how it's been prophesied that the gospel will go to all the world. And obviously we have missionaries and we have temples throughout the world. And I just think it's amazing to think of the power of the internet and how myself and other people who do podcasts can just put our voices out there. And my voice is reaching out to the world. And I'm not saying that like I'm so cool, but I'm saying that like The Lord is so cool. Can you imagine throughout all of the scriptures that we have and the early saints that they ever could possibly have imagined something so amazing that someone so regular and ordinary like me could put my voice out there and people around the world have the opportunity to listen or hopefully the opportunity. Anyway, I just want you guys to just think about every time you listen to any podcast, mine or not, um, or, or anything on the internet that has to do with the church. How incredible the Lord is in the fullness of times making technology available that actually make all of his prophecies be able to be fulfilled. It's just so amazing. So, hello Germany. All right, this week's section have got some really great context that you should definitely read. It doesn't talk about it in these sections, but there was some really major persecution going on in Missouri, and I encourage you to read chapter 16 and 17 of the Saints book to help you with some of that context. Um, If you have the Saints book, great. If not, it's just in your gospel library, so all of you can have access to that. And it's really just so good, and it's such a great reminder of all the sacrifices that we all need to be mentally prepared to make if the time ever arises, because those saints experience that and still remain faithful and make incredible sacrifices in order to move the church forward and remain faithful to Jesus Christ. So go read that stuff. It's it's really awesome. But today I want to talk specifically about section 95. In section 95, the Lord is chastening the saints for delaying their building of the temple that they were commanded to build. They were previously commanded to build a temple, obviously, and they hadn't started it yet. Joseph Smith said on the same day that this revelation was received, Great preparations were being made to commence a house of the Lord, and notwithstanding the church was poor, yet our unity, harmony, and charity abounded to strengthen us to do the commandments of God. The building of the house of the Lord in Kirtland was a matter that continued to increase in its interest in the hearts of the brethren. The Lord starts out this revelation with a reminder. Verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, whom I love, And whom I love I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation. And I have loved you. Because the Lord loves us, he chastens us. One of the very first things that I thought about was my son. We've been having some hard days lately where he is just really struggling to listen to me and follow through with what I ask him to do. And as I parent him through this, when I'm being my best self, my chastening is truly coming from a place of love. I want him to learn to be productive and successful, hardworking, and to be the best version of himself. 
And sometimes that means I need to be a little sharp with him. I know that I need to teach him how things are and how he can become his best self. And sometimes the ways that he can become his best self is not the most comfortable choice for him. For instance, he truly really wants to be a great piano player. And I know in order for him to be great at the piano, he needs to practice in the ways that his teacher has taught him. And I've definitely listened to a few practice sessions of his where he is doing things his own way. And there is no way he would get good doing it that way. So as his mother, it's my job to continue to teach him truth about how to get where he wants to go and where I want him to go in piano and in life in general. It's the same with the Savior and our Father in Heaven. Because they love us, they want us to be productive, successful, hardworking, and ultimately become the best versions of ourselves. It's necessary that they not sugarcoat the truth to temporarily make things easier for us or easier to bear. Shrouding reality would be, in fact, the very opposite because they know that embracing truth is how we grow to become like our Savior. It's the same with our prophets and apostles. They are trying to help us be firm and strong in the faith as we possibly can because they love and serve God and therefore they love and serve us. And the only way for us to be as firm and strong as we need to be is for us to embrace truth, actual truth, truth as described by our Creator. In this section of Doctrine and Covenants, we are seeing the people being actively chastised for treating a commandment of the Lord lightly. Chastisement can be a hard thing to hear, and the receiving of that rebuke can go a few different ways. The person might have a soft heart and be willing to listen and change. The person might initially bristle, but then soften. Or the person might have a hard heart and feel as though the words spoken to them are unfair or perhaps completely untrue. First, I want to focus on the kind of heart that creates a wall in the mind of the person who hears truth. We know that we need the spirit of revelation in order to understand the things of God. So when we don't have the spirit with us, when we're not trying to to be one with God and let him prevail, that creates a wall in the mind of that person. I often think of Laman and Lemuel in the Book of Mormon. In this particular part, Nephi was explaining the vision of the tree of life and explaining to them the justice of God in dividing the wicked from the righteous. 1 Nephi chapter 16, verses 1-5 through 5. And now it came to pass that after I, Nephi, had made an end of speaking to my brethren about the tree of life and all that stuff, behold, they said unto me, Thou hast declared unto us hard things, more than we are able to bear. And it came to pass that I said unto them that I knew I had spoken hard things against the wicked, according to the truth, and the righteous have I justified, and testified that they should be lifted up at the last day. Wherefore, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. And now, my brethren, if ye were righteous and were willing to hearken to the truth and give heed unto it, ye might walk uprightly before God. Then ye would not murmur because of the truth and say, Thou speakest hard things unto us. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did exhort my brethren with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. And it came to pass that they did humble themselves before the Lord, insomuch that I had joy and great hopes for them that they would walk in paths of righteousness. So in this particular instance, Laman and Lemuel humbled themselves and were willing to accept Nephi's words. So to move on to another example, in Jesus' life, he spoke to his apostles in John chapter 6. Jesus had just performed the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, and after performing that miracle, Jesus went away by himself, and the disciples entered into a ship without Jesus. And in the middle of the night, they saw Jesus walking toward them, and they were afraid. He commanded them not to be afraid, and that it was him. 
Verse 21, Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at land whither they went. So the next day, the people were confused about where the ship went and where Jesus went because they knew that he didn't get into the ship with the apostles. When they got to the other side of the sea and found Jesus, they asked him how he got there. He then preached to them about what they were truly seeking for. And he talked about how he was the true manna from heaven. Verse 35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The people then murmured because they said, don't we know this guy's mom and dad? <laughs> and then how is it that he says he comes down from heaven? And then in verse 51, Jesus continued, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread shall live forever. And the bread which I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of this world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Many were confused. This is not something that made sense to them. And then it continues in verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said unto them, Therefore I say unto you, that no man cometh unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So I just gave you two examples. Both Nephi and Jesus were explaining things in a symbolic way. Nephi interpreting the vision of the tree of life and talking about the wicked and righteous being divided. And then Christ comparing his flesh and blood to bread and water. In both examples, the audience listening was struggling to understand the truth contained, and it offended them. And why does Nephi say that that is? The guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. And now, my brethren, if ye were righteous, and ye were willing to hearken to the truth, and give heed unto it, that ye might walk uprightly before God, then ye would not murmur because of the truth, and say, Thou speakest hard things against us. And what does Christ say about this? He asked his disciples, Did this offend you? Will ye also go away? I want you to think about what are, what are some gospel truths that you or people in your life taketh to be hard? One thing I notice that's offensive to people is something as simple as the fact that there is wickedness and righteousness. That most central and core truth is viewed as uncompassionate and unfair, something incompatible with a loving and kind God. In 2 Nephi chapter 28, verse 8, it says, And there also shall be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin. Yea, lie a little. Take advantage of one because of his words. Dig a pit for thy neighbor. There is no harm in this. And do all things, for tomorrow we die. And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes. And at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Yea, and there shall be many which shall teach after this manner false and vain and foolish doctrines, and shall be puffed up in their hearts, and shall seek deep to hide their counsels from the Lord, and their work shall be in the dark. 
Does this sound familiar at all to you? I mean, it's basically verbatim. But though the world would have us believe that whatever we want to do, whatever makes us feel good is right and is fine, we know that that is not true. In 2 Nephi chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it says, For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass. Neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must be a compound in one. Wherefore, if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead. Having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense or insensibility. Wherefore, it must needs have been created for a thing of naught. Wherefore, there would have been no purpose in the end of its creation. Wherefore, this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes, and also the power and the mercy and the justice of God. And if ye shall say there is no law, ye shall also say there is no sin. And if ye say there is no sin, ye shall also say there is no righteousness. And if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness. And if there be no righteousness nor happiness, there be no punishment nor misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. And if there is no God, we are not, neither the earth. For there could have been no creation of things, neither to act nor be acted upon. Wherefore, all things must have vanished away. The existence of wickedness and righteousness rather than evidence of an unfair and unloving God, is proof of his love and compassion. If there is no righteousness, there is no happiness. Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. And if there was not opposition in all things, there could be no joy, and thereby there would have been no purpose in our creation. Another core truth that I see offending people is the requirement of faith. I've said it many times before, but faith? It's a hard thing. I definitely know people who feel that faith comes easy to them. And I know people who faith comes not so easy. It's, it's really hard. It's, it's something that requires a soft heart and a willingness to let God prevail in your mind, a humble acceptance of the fact that you don't know or understand everything right now, and that that is okay and how it was always supposed to be. The world, in general, finds faith offensive and ridiculous and foolish, Faith, to many, is a crutch for a soft-minded, brainwashed fool who is clinging onto something that they can't bear to let go of. Faith, to them, is illegitimate. Let's remember what Korahor preached in Alma chapter 30, verse 13. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope, why do ye yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do ye look for a Christ? For no man can know of anything which is to come. Behold, these things which ye call prophecies, which ye say are handed down by holy prophets, behold, they are foolish traditions of your fathers. How do ye know of their surety? Behold, ye cannot know of things which ye do not see. Therefore ye cannot know that there shall be a Christ. Ye look forward and say that ye see a remission of your sins, but behold, it is the effect of a frenzied mind. And this derangement of your minds comes because of the traditions of your fathers, which lead you away into belief of things which are not so. So after preaching these things to the people, he is eventually, Korahor is eventually brought to Alma. And listen to Alma's reply to the things that Korahor had to say. Will ye deny again that there is a God, and also deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you, I know there is a God, and also that Christ is to come. And now what evidence have ye that there is no God, or that Christ cometh not? I say unto you that ye have none, save it be your word only. At that point, Korahor asks for a sign. 
But Alma said unto him, Thou hast had signs enough. Will ye tempt your God? Will ye say, Show unto me a sign, when ye have the testimony of all these thy brethren, and also all the holy prophets? The scriptures are laid before thee, yea, and all things denote that there is a God. Yea, even the earth, and all things that are upon the face of it, yea, its motion, yea, and all the planets which move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator. And yet do ye go about leading away the hearts of this people, testifying unto them that there is no God? And yet will ye deny against all these witnesses? Man, one of my favorite speeches of the Book of Mormon, and in it contains one of my favorite phrases in the Book of Mormon, all things denote that there is a God. So we've talked about a couple of truths that offend people who are not fully embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can tell because they're offended by it. They're offended by the idea that we must have faith. They're offended by the idea that there is wickedness and righteousness. Are there doctrinal points that you yourself find to be hard? I find it interesting that in the example we gave with Laman and Lemuel and the example that Christ gives is not necessarily a chastisement that they find hard, but quite simply is just gospel truth. So let's talk about a second category. We've talked about truth and how a simple truth can be offensive or hard to understand to someone who has hardened their heart in some way. Now let's talk about active rebuke, like what's happening in this section. So I want to give an example of of just something in my life that's happened in my marriage throughout all of our 16 years of being marriage. And I think it's a common one for many people. If I have some sort of problem with my husband, I don't really have much issue or hesitation in approaching him about it. And I don't think that's necessarily a positive thing always on my part. I do think that I should be able to approach him with problems. Um, But I think in general... He's just really great at taking whatever feedback I give him and trying to do better. He doesn't really bristle. He doesn't let what I'm saying wound him forever. He listens and we talk and then he tries to do better. Now, me, on the other hand, if he has something that I'm doing that's bothering him, it definitely takes a big gulp moment for him to actually decide to say anything to me because I don't react as well as he does. Either my feelings are super hurt or I'm angry because I feel like he's forgetting all of the good things that I do do. And I think one of the reasons that it's hard to hear him say anything to me in in criticism is generally because I'm already pretty aware of my shortcomings. And to hear them say out loud hurts my feelings because generally I know that it's true. Do we ever react that way when being rebuked by the Spirit or approached and concerned by your spouse or when we've been chastised by church leaders? Remember when Alma called the people of Ammonihah to repentance? He delivered a pretty scathing sermon to them, saying things like he says in Alma chapter 9, verse 19, For he will not suffer that you shall live in your iniquities to destroy his people. I say unto you, nay, he would rather suffer that the Lamanites might destroy all his people who were called the people of Nephi, if it were possible that they could fall into sins and transgressions, after having so much light and so much knowledge given unto them of the Lord their God. So he says a whole bunch of things like this, pretty pretty harsh. And how did they react? Verse 31, Now it came to pass that when I, Alma, had spoken these words, behold, the people were wroth with me, because I said unto them that they were a hard-hearted and stiff-necked people. And what were some of the things that the the people were saying back to Ammon? Verse 2, Who art thou? 
Suppose ye that we shall believe the testimony of one man, although he should preach unto us that the earth should pass away? And they said also, We will not believe thy words if thou shouldst prophesy that this great city should be destroyed in one day. Now they knew not that God could do such marvelous works, for they were a hard-hearted and stiff-necked people. And they said, Who is God that sendeth no more authority than one man among this people, to declare unto them the truth of such great and marvelous things? Isn't it interesting how we can read the scriptures and hear that nothing has changed? These are the same arguments that we hear today. Now, let's talk about the saints and how they reacted to the Lord's rebuke in section 95 about their lack of urgency in building the temple. It says in the Come Follow Me manual, After being chastised for not building the house of the Lord in Kirtland, church leaders chose a site in a wheat field where they would build. Hiram Smith, the prophet's brother, immediately ran to get a skiff and began clearing the field. We are preparing to build a house of the Lord, he said, and I am determined to be the first at work. Do you react that way? When you feel rebuked by the Spirit, or, or by a church leader in general conference, or when you're reading the scriptures, you feel that the Lord is chastising you. Is that how you react, where you take that chastisement into your heart immediately and just get to work? The saints also followed after Hiram's lead, and they got to work after that. How could they have reacted? They could have said, do you know how hard it has been out here creating this community? Do you know the persecutions we've already endured? And can you imagine what's going to happen as soon as we start to build a big temple? We already made the school of the prophets. Didn't you see that? Don't you know how much we've already sacrificed? How do we pay for this? We are going to do it. Can't you just give us a second? All of those things could have been said, and maybe some did say them. But for the most part, the saints just got to work. They took that chastisement and they used it for their good. And remember that the Lord told them that that chastisement was for their good. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you whom I love, and whom I love I also chasteneth, that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things. Let's listen to just a few examples of recent calls to repentance that we've experienced in general conference. Calls to repentance that come out of love so that we can have our sins forgiven, so that we can move forward. President Nelson said, Whether you are diligently moving along the covenant path or have slipped and stepped from the covenant path and can't even see the path from where you are now, I plead with you to repent. Experience the strengthening power of daily repentance, of doing and being a little better each day. Brethren, prayerfully seek to understand what stands in the way of your repentance. Identify what stops you from repenting and then change. Repent. All of us can do better and be better than ever before. Another call, call to repentance from President Nelson, he said in a social media release statement, The Creator of us all calls on each of us to abandon attitudes of prejudice against any group of God's children. Any of us who has prejudice toward another race needs to repent. During the Savior's earthly mission, he constantly ministered to those who were excluded, marginalized, judged, overlooked, abused, and discounted. As his followers, can we do anything less? The answer is no. We believe in freedom, kindness, and fairness for all of God's children. Again, here's President Nelson. We need to do better and be better because we are in a battle. The battle with sin is real. The adversary is quadrupling his efforts to disrupt testimonies and impede the work of the Lord. He is arming his minions with potent weapons to keep us from partaking of the joy and the love of the Lord. There are specific ways in which we likely can improve. 
One is in the way we treat our bodies. I stand in awe of the miracle of the human body. It is a magnificent creation, essential to our gradual ascent toward ultimate divine potential. We cannot progress without it. In giving us the gift of a body, God has allowed us to take a vital step toward becoming more like Him. We all need to repent. We need to get up off the couch, put down the remote, and wake up from our spiritual slumber. It is time to put on the full armor of God so that we can engage in the most important work on earth. It is time to thrust in our sickles and reap with all our might, mind, and strength. The forces of evil have never raged more forcefully than they do today. As servants of the Lord, we cannot be asleep while this battle rages. So there are some examples from our beloved prophet and things he has asked us to do. Most recently, Elder Holland gave a speech to the faculty and staff at BYU speaking about the doctrine of marriage between a man and a woman, and it has caused quite a stir. He says, We have to be careful that love and empathy do not get interpreted as condoning and advocacy, or that orthodoxy and loyalty to principle not be interpreted as unkindness or disloyalty to people. As near as I can tell, Christ never once withheld his love from anyone, but he also never once said unto anyone, because I love you, you are exempt from keeping my commandments. We are tasked with trying to strike that same sensitive, demanding balance in our lives. There will continue to be those who oppose our teachings, and with that will continue the need to define, document, and defend the faith. But we all look forward to the day when we can beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks, and at least on this subject, learn war no more. And while I have focused on this same-sex topic this morning, more than I would have liked, I pray that you will see it as emblematic of a lot of issues our students, our communities, and our church face in this complex, contemporary world of ours. In this speech, he brought up the metaphor of the builders of the Nauvoo Temple, who worked with a towel in one hand and a musket in the other hand to defend the temple. He uses that metaphor to encourage us to defend the doctrine of the church and not to engage in friendly fire, reminding us that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And what he means by friendly fire is that we're fighting amongst ourselves about what the doctrine should or should not be instead of just deferring to the Lord's anointed servants that apparently we all believe are the mouthpieces of Jesus Christ. Now, I encourage all of you to go listen to, not just read, the talk by Elder Holland. You will feel his love for all the people in this community. You will feel nothing but compassion and empathy for the place that they're in in their lives. In this talk, he is talking far less about those people and more about people in the church challenging doctrine, doctrine sent and given to us by Jesus Christ. The issue, this issue, is very complex, and the people who felt hurt by this talk have very valid feelings about it. And there have been some within the church who have taken this as permission to treat members of the LGBTQ community unfairly and cruelly. But let's not forget to separate the talk and the man who gave the talk with the reactions of people. Let's first address the reactions of people who have decided, because of feelings they already have in their heart, that this controversy gives them permission to treat or speak to people in the LGBTQ community in an unkind or unloving way. The talk itself, in my point of view, is not the problem. The problem comes from the hearts of those whose hearts are misaligned with the unconditional love for all of God's children and is entirely in opposition to the spirit of Elder Holland's talk. On the other side, I think people who feel uncomfortable 
and maybe even ashamed of the doctrine of the church regarding the doctrine of marriage between a man and a woman, probably feel uncomfortable or ashamed of any clear declaration of this doctrine. They find the doctrine itself offensive. Where else today, as we've been talking, have we heard of doctrine offending people? Perhaps when Jesus asked his disciples, doth this offend you? Will ye also go away? Or when Nephi's brother said, thou hast declared unto us hard things more than we are able to bear. I hope that we can be like Simon Peter and say, when the Lord asks if we also will leave because we're offended, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Maybe this doctrine makes you uncomfortable. Maybe you're okay with the doctrine, but the metaphor makes you uncomfortable. Maybe this doctrine doesn't quite make sense to you right now. And I totally get that. I also want to encourage you to continue to try and understand the will of the Lord and the doctrine of the Lord, because he can help calm your heart and help you have a broader perspective line upon line. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Proverbs 14, verse 12, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jacob chapter 4, verse 8, Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him. And it is impossible that man should find out all his ways, and no man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. I know when I am seeking to understand something, when my heart is humble and I'm truly willing to accept whatever the Lord has to say, He aligns my heart with His. Even if I fully don't understand it in my mind, my heart is brought in line with His will and with His doctrine. I would hope, when we listen to an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our first response, our first reaction, is an anger, questioning, and self-righteousness. That our first reaction is love for this man who we have grown to know and love. That though we might not fully understand, we remind ourselves that our perspective is painfully limited and that maybe our offense isn't coming from a godly place. Maybe it's coming from our natural man. We need to remind ourselves that we have a testimony that the Lord leads and guides his apostles and prophets today. That we might say to the Lord after something offends us and we think about leaving or question our testimony of modern day prophets, I would hope that as the Lord asks us if we will also go away, that we can say, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that our prophets are led and guided and directed by our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe and fully support the doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have felt rubbed the wrong way in statements made by the Church or by its leaders, but I choose to trust because where else would I go? This is the true Church of Jesus Christ. In it are the words of eternal life, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that our prophet and apostles are inspired men of God. I believe that my point of view, based on my opinions, 
are completely irrelevant to truth. Who am I to tell God that my morality is higher than his? If we all based morality on our own ideas of what morality is, we would get to what you see in the world today. Moral relativity is what's destroying our society from inside out. The only firm grasp on true morality is to grasp tightly to the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And we must remember that that doctrine, the second great commandment, is to love our neighbor as ourself. There is not any excuse that the Lord would accept for doing otherwise. When we are called to repentance or hear a doctrine of the church that's hard for us to hear or offends our minds, let's always remember to self-analyze and ensure that our hearts are soft and willing to let God prevail in our minds before we come to any other conclusion, before we jump to anger, before we jump to self-righteousness. D. Todd Christofferson says, The invitation to repent is an expression of love. When the Savior began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it was a message of love, inviting all who would qualify to join him and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life itself in the world to come. If we do not invite others to change or if we do not demand repentance of ourselves, we fail in a fundamental duty we owe to one another and to ourselves. A permissive parent, an indulgent friend, a fearful church leader are in reality more concerned about themselves than the welfare and happiness of those they could help. Yes, the call to repentance is at times regarded as intolerant or offensive or may even be resented, but guided by the Spirit, it is in reality an act of genuine caring. Let's end with verse 1 of section 95. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, whom I love, and whom I love, I also chasten that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement, I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation. And I have loved you. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ.